John chapter 4, beginning in verse 43. Here we go. Now after the two days he departed from there. This is Jesus departing from uh, Sychar or Shechem there in Samaria. Now after two days he departed from there went to Galilee. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they also had gone to the feast. So Jesus came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and implored him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Then Jesus said to him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. The nobleman said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go your way, your son lives. So the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went his way. And as he was now going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, Your son lives. Then he inquired of them the hour when he got better. And they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at the same hour in which Jesus said to him, Your son lives, and he himself believed in his whole household. This, again, is the second sign that Jesus did when he'd come out of Judea in Galilee. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage of Scripture, the book of John. We love it. Lord, thank you for your word. We ask you to bless this study this morning. Speak to our hearts and minds. Continue to feed us with your bread from heaven, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. By the way, I forgot to acknowledge our friends visiting, the Lopez's up from Texas. I'm sorry? Where the crickets are. I wouldn't eat those crickets. Oh, where the crickets? Yeah, you, you didn't eat any crickets? Oh. I hear they're pretty good if you pan roast them, you know, a little. <laughs> you have garlic salt. <laughs> Bob used to teach in our school. Good to have them visiting. Okay, so here we are, verse 43. After two days, he departed from there and went to Galilee. As you may recall, things were, the whole chapter started, things were heating up in Judea between Jesus, John, and the Pharisees. Uh, all about, hey, John, do you realize Jesus is getting more followers than you? They were trying to stir up dissension between Jesus and his disciples and John and his disciples. And, you know, every time Jesus went down to Judea, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees were always harassing him, so they depart back for Galilee. But Jesus, remember on the way, deliberately went through Samaria. He could have gone around. It takes longer, but the, usually most Jews would have gone around. They wouldn't have gone through Samaria. But Jesus went, as we saw last week, because the fields were white unto harvest. In other words, God had been preparing the hearts of those Samaritans to receive Christ. So having brought many Samaritans to faith, they now continue their journey, for Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. Now, in spite of anticipating a potentially negative response, Jesus and his disciples press on to Galilee. Kind of between a rock and a hard spot. Harassed in Judea, unwelcome at home. But as we'll see in a moment, it would appear that he was referring specifically to his hometown of Nazareth, which was considered part of the Galilee region, but he gets a much better welcome from those other people around, right around the Sea of Galilee there. Mark 6, 1 through 6, he went out from there and came to his own country, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, 
He began to teach in the synagogue, and many hearing him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this which is given to him that such mighty works are performed by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? So this would apparently be his hometown of Nazareth, and it's kind of like familiarity breeds contempt, if you will. So they were offended at him. He hadn't done anything wrong. They were amazed at his wisdom. They were amazed at his works. But simply because they knew him as a hometown kid growing up there, and of course there were those rumors of him being um, a bastard child, if you will, that Mary got pregnant before she was married to Joseph. And questionable as to who the father was. I mean, we know his father is God. But they were offended him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house, Nazareth. How many of you have ever experienced that? Because people have known you a long time, you've known you all your life or whatever. You become a believer and they're very skeptical. Yeah, this is just a phase. We know this won't last. Blah, 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 right? Or you try to share your faith. Well, who are you to tell me? You know, you're just a young whippersnapper. You know, you're 60, I'm 80. <laughs> um, but, you know, ever encounter that attitude with people? That's why oftentimes I will pray if it's somebody near and dear to me, I'll pray that God will bring someone across their path that's not part of that circle. Someone with a good testimony, a good witness with integrity, but not, you know, a family member or friend or something so that they can see there are other people out there that are true, genuine believers besides just those in our own family. Pray, pray that the Lord will bring believers, solid Believers with a good witness, with a good testimony across the path of those near and dear to you that may not receive your witness or your testimony because they just know you too well. Sometimes it's hard for them to get, forget who you were before you got saved. Now Jesus, of course, did not have that kind of track record. He was always perfect. But, again, just because he grew up there, they knew him, they tended to reject him. So now, oh, now he could no, do no mighty work there. Isn't that interesting? Really, Jesus, the Son of God, the miracle worker, was hindered by their lack of faith, by their attitudes? That tells you that we do have a part to play. Now, Jesus told the disciples, if you have the faith of a mustard seed, which is barely visible to the naked eye, you can move a mountain. So it's not that we have to build ourselves up and pump ourselves up into this massive amount of faith, but we do have to direct that faith squarely at and upon Jesus. And because of the, the, the wall that was up between them and Jesus, he could do no um, mighty work there. Isn't that interesting? So it is important that we do our best to kind of create a climate of faith. Rather than always expecting God to not answer our prayers, we should, based upon the promises of his word, expect that he will. 
but he hears the prayers of his people and he does answer that doesn't mean the answer will always be the one that we want but we trust that he's faithful we can depend upon him we can trust in him put our faith fully in him so whether it's in the church or it's in our homes wherever it is just kind of creating that climate of faith as you will that's why oftentimes when jesus would heal a sick person or raise someone from the dead he would ask everybody to leave the room remember that there was a reason for that he didn't want any negativity or unbelief or any of that junk in the room while he was praying for that person now do I fully understand all these dynamics I don't one day we will when we see him face to face in the meantime we go by the truth of God's Word and the way that he directs us and leads us so he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them so a bad day for Jesus is when a, only a few people get healed <laughs> kind of interesting huh he could only lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them and he marveled because of their unbelief then he went about the villages do you ever marvel because of somebody's unbelief especially because God does so many amazing things every day in our lives if we just have eyes to see and ears to hear and we're watching and we're aware of what he's doing I don't think we got give God near enough credit for all the miracles that he does in our lives there's so many he marveled because of their unbelief then he went about the villages in a circuit teaching so he left Nazareth because of this environment and began to go to the other communities around uh, the lake so verse 45 we pick it up back here in John so when he came to Galilee not Nazareth the Galileans received him having seen all the things he did in Jerusalem at the feast for they also had gone to the feast this would have been the first Passover feast that Jesus attended after he began his public ministry so unlike the people in Jesus hometown of Nazareth the people from the various communities around the Sea of Galilee welcomed him they had seen the things he did in Jerusalem at the feast John 2 23 now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did now we studied his uh, cleansing of the temple but while he was there he was also apparently doing what he does he was doing signs and wonders doing miracles and they saw them the people from the region of Galilee had gone down for the feast because of course the Jews were required to attend at least three feasts in Jerusalem annually Exodus 23 14 through 17 three times you shall keep a feast to me in the year you shall keep the feast of unleavened bread which is connected with Passover you shall eat unleavened bread seven days as I commanded you at the time appointed in the month of Abib for in it you came out of Egypt that would be March April for in it you came out of Egypt none shall appear before me empty and the feast of harvest the first fruits two days after Passover and Jesus is called the first fruits of all those raised from the dead and interesting Jesus resurrection is directly connected with the feast of first fruits he rose from the dead on the third day and the feast of harvest or first fruits is two days after Passover that gives you the three days right equal to when Jesus rose from the dead and we are also the fruits he's the first fruit 
and then all those who believe are the fruits of that resurrection. The first fruits of your labors which you have sown in the field and the feast of ingathering or Sukkot, also called Harvest Festival, at the end of the year, September, when you have gathered in the fruit of your labors from the field. Three times in the year all your males shall appear before the Lord. And of course many times they were accompanied by wives and daughters and so forth. But it was mandatory for the men. Another interesting thing with this Sukkot in gathering at the end of the year, the Jewish year, which ends in September. It's right after the Feast of Trumpets. Now, there were some predictions. Remember that Jesus would come this year on the Feast of Trumpets? He didn't make it. He must have got stuck somewhere on it. But right after the Feast of Trumpets is the, uh, the Harvest Festival in gathering when he would harvest the crop of believers. It's so cool how all this works. Well, let's move on here. Verse 46. So Jesus came again unto Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine, and there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. Cana, if you may recall, when we talked about the wedding feast earlier, it's about 3.7 miles um, <clears throat> west of Nazareth. And so they're in the region of Galilee, but the, the Sea of Galilee is about 16 miles in the other direction, to the, to the east. So they go directly to Cana, where he had performed his first miracle, if you recall, his first public miracle. Although it was at a private wedding feast, number of people there. And he encounters there a certain nobleman. It literally means a royal person, and so it's believed he was probably an officer of King Herod Antipas, who was the tetrarch over the region of Galilee. He was some kind of an official, called a nobleman or a royal person. And his son was sick back at Capernaum. That's where Peter came from. That's where Peter's mother got sick, and Jesus healed her and so forth. So he comes about a day's journey to meet Jesus there, to find Jesus. And when he had heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and implored him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus' reputation had obviously preceded him, and this man was desperate for Jesus to heal his son. And he says, notice he says, come down, even though if you look at a map, Cana and Capernaum are almost directly across from one another, but down, because as you go down uh, to Tiberias, which is the modern city there, on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee, uh, it spirals way down as you're coming down into the city because the Sea of Galilee is 700 feet below sea level. Isn't that wild? And so when they, he, he said come down to Capernaum because if Jesus were to come from Cana, that's exactly what would happen. There would be a massive descent as they get right there to the Sea of Galilee and to the, the town of Capernaum on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. Then Jesus said to him, another thing to, to make note of here, we're going to see in a moment, Jesus heals his son without making one move of going anywhere. Just by speaking the word. This man believes that Jesus must come to his home and physically lay hands on his son in order to heal him. Then Jesus said to him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. Jesus 
at this point in his ministry had already experienced being sought after only for his miracles. There's people like that today, right? They claim to be seeking after God, but it's only for what they can get. And when I say what they can get, they're not thinking of salvation, forgiveness of sin, eternal life. They're thinking about whatever your immediate need is. Instant gratification. And we keep pointing out week after week how Jesus was always focused on the, the spiritual over the, the physical, the eternal over the temporary. And so he really kind of challenges the guy here regarding the authenticity of his faith. Are you just another one of these miracle seekers? And it would be, I think, important to point out, and I think I may have already mentioned this, that Jesus did no miracles in Samaria, and yet they believed. Why? Because of his word, we're told. John 4, 39 and, uh, and 4, through 41. Many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, the woman at the well, and what she tell the people in the community? He told me all that I ever did. The guy read my mail, as it were. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them. He stayed there two days, and many more believed. Why? Because of his word. He didn't do any healings or resurrections or anything like that. He stayed there for two days and spoke to them, <coughs> imparted the truth to them, God's truth, and they became believers without a miracle because of his own word. In fact, I just throw this out there. Are there some people who come to faith in God because of miracles? Absolutely. And we'll see more about that in a moment. But I would propose to you that the person who comes to faith without seeing any visible miracle as such, any sign or wonder, but just comes to faith based upon the truth of God's word as it's planted in their heart by the Holy Spirit, I think that's a better, more trustworthy more reliable conversion than the one who claims to become a believer because they saw some great miracle. In fact, the Bible tells us the Antichrist is going to come with great lying signs and wonders. So there's a cautionary tale there about being someone who seeks only after signs and wonders and miracles. And we'll, get, we'll talk about that more here in a moment. <clears throat> Paul, in 1 Corinthians 1.22, he said, Jews demand signs, Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews. How can he be the Messiah if he's dead? Well, if, in case you didn't notice, he rose again. A stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. And Jesus himself was particularly harsh with the religious leaders of his day, Matthew 12, 38 through 40. Some of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Don't you just love those people that stand in front of God and demand that he do things? It takes a lot of gall. You've got to be a Kenneth Copeland or a Kenneth Hagin or somebody like that to do that. Right?
He answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. And no sign will be given to it, listen to this, except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus is predicting his death and burial. But what happened to Jonah after three days and three nights? The whale barfed him up. <laughs> and he was alive and well. Well, after three days and three nights, the grave evicted Jesus, and he was alive and well. And so that's what he's telling the Pharisees, this evil and adulterous generation, the only sign that you're going to get is my death and resurrection. And folks, that's the only sign that you need and that I need. Because that's the whole ball game. He died on the cross, paid the price for our sins, and on the third day he rose from the dead, promising that we too would one day rise from the dead. That is the greatest miracle in all of human history. <clears throat> the nobleman said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. He's getting a little frustrated. He's not really in the mood for a lecture. Jesus is kind of challenging him here. What's your real motive? And this man was not a sign seeker. He was simply distraught over the impending death of his son. But he has absolute faith in Jesus and was undeterred by Jesus' challenge. Charles Spurgeon had this to say about this incident. He, the nobleman, urged no merit. In other words, the nobleman didn't say, well, you know, Jesus, I am a man of great importance that would probably be good on your resume to come down to my house and heal my son. He urged no merit. I deserve special treatment because I'm from Washington, D.C. I'm a senator. I'm a congressman. I'm a rhino. Or some other kind of O. A couple of you got that. Lynn got that. He urged no merit, but pleaded the misery of the case. He did not plead that the boy was of noble birth. That would have been very bad, pleading with Jesus. Nor did he urge that he was a lovely child. My son deserves to be healed. He's a good kid. That would have been a, a sorry argument. But he pleaded that he was at the point of death. This is urgent. Ever get that uh, recording? If this is an emergency... Hang up and call 911. I call my friend Brian Davis. He's a, he's a, a Christian counselor, psychologist, doctor. He has his doctorate, so he's called Dr. Davis. Call him up, get his voicemail. Dr. Davis, this is an emergency. He doesn't sound real worried about it. It's kind of lackadaisical, but this is an emergency. Hang up and call 911. And that's where this guy's at. This is urgent, it's an emergency. He pleaded that he was at the point of death. His extremity was his reason for urgency. The child was at death's door, therefore his father begs that the mercy's door may open. That mercy's door may open. Somehow it reminded me of the conversation that Jesus had uh, with his disciples, John 6, uh, 66 through 69. 
From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. But, and then Jesus said to the twelve, Do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. This guy seems to be of the same persuasion. He's insistent. He believes and he knows that the only one who can heal his son is Jesus. And so again, he begs him, come down. He's still of the mindset, the mentality, that the only way that this can happen is if Jesus literally travels the almost 17 miles to Capernaum, which, you know, in those days was a, a long distance. It was like a day's trip. He believed Jesus had to physically be there to heal his son. But Jesus makes it real simple for him. Verse 50. Jesus said to him, Go your way, your son lives. So the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went his way. This is extremely encouraging and comforting for us as believers today. And we, I think most of us here know this. It doesn't matter where we are, when we are. We can pray to God anytime, any place. He hears our prayers as we pray in the name of his son Jesus. And he's able. You could pray for someone in China and God can heal them. Because he's omniscient. He knows all. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere. He's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. And Jesus is exhibiting that right here with this nobleman from Capernaum. All Jesus had to do was speak the word. Jesus spoke to him and he went his way. After all, Jesus is the one who spoke this whole universe into existence. In the beginning, right? God said, let there be light. And we, I think we talked about it at least three times there in Genesis 1 where it says, God said. And by the way, Jesus is God. Let us make man in our image, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, there at creation. John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God and is God. And so, again, I think we see the great faith of this man. When Jesus says that, the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him. Do you see a pattern here? Going back to the Samaritans, they believed in Jesus because of his words. Or his word, his own word. And this man now, Jesus spoke the word, the man believed it. So how does Jesus speak to us today? Hello. The Holy Bible the divinely inspired God-breathed scriptures of the Old and New Testament, not from some fake, phony, false prophet teacher telling you that he or she has a new revelation from God. Jesus calling. Have you ever heard some preacher say, now here's something you ain't ever heard before. <laughs> You probably don't want to hear it. We have 2,000 years of historical, accurate, orthodox Christian belief handed down to us, beginning with the Apostles' Doctrine in the first century. 
Now, is it possible that we can gain greater understanding? I think so, especially we've talked about the book of Daniel 12, where God tells Daniel, close up these words, go your way, Daniel, until the last days when knowledge shall increase and men shall travel to and fro about the earth. I do believe in these last days we're gaining a greater understanding, particularly with regards to prophecy. But it's not a reinterpretation, a reinvention. It's simply a greater understanding of that which has always been there for us, revealed to us by God. And there's certainly no... We have what we call the non-negotiables. You know, uh, the virgin birth, the divine conception, God implanting his seed within the Virgin Mary. You know, the perfect sinless life of Christ. There's, the, it's a crazy number. It's somewhere between 25 and 43%, I forget exactly, of people in the church today who believe Jesus sinned. In the church. That is a departure from the truth of God's word. If Jesus sinned, then it's all over. There's no hope for us. He couldn't have died on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins if he sinned. But we have more and more unbiblical worldly beliefs uh, infiltrating the church today. We have to stick, even as Jesus spoke to these folks while he was here on earth, the Samaritans, the noblemen, on, his disciples, on and on it goes. He was there with them in person. But now we have the complete Old and New Testament handed down to us by our spiritual fathers in the faith. That's first and foremost how we hear from God. The words of men are never entirely reliable, no matter how hard we try. And some don't try that hard. But no matter how hard we try, we all fall short. That's why Paul, uh, Paul uh, commended uh, the Bereans for being more noble than the Thessalonians, or the Thessalonians, because they searched the Scriptures daily to make sure that what Paul was telling them was the truth. The Scriptures for them would have been the Old Testament. But be a Berean. Do your own homework. Search the Scriptures. Don't take anybody's word for it. God is able to speak to you directly through His Word by, your, by His Holy Spirit. So here he is, he's going home now. As he was now going down, again, in elevation, not, you know, um, geographically, <clears throat> down to Capernaum, his servants met him and told him, saying, your son lives. Gee, just as Jesus had told him, right? Go your, go your way, your son is made well. His servants rushed out to meet him with the astounding news that his dying son was now completely well. Then he inquired to, of them the hour when he got better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. Boom, all of a sudden, this fever, which apparently was a um, fatal condition, whatever was causing the fever, leaves his body. This would have been... 1 p.m., the seventh hour. Some other Bible commentators believe it was based upon the Roman clock 
which would have made it 7 p.m. I'm not sure it matters that much. But it took the man until the next day to arrive back in Capernaum. Now, this is further evidence of his faith because he rushed to Cana. As soon as he heard Jesus was there, he rushes over there from Capernaum to seek healing for his son. But trusting in the words of Jesus, he kind of took his time returning home. Like I said, it's about a day's journey now. It depends on what time of the day it was when he had his encounter with Jesus. Probably not wanting to travel at night, but nonetheless... If he was still desperately concerned about the, the impending death of his son, one would think that he would have rushed home as fast as he could. But he seems to be at peace about it. He seems to be comfortable with the idea that even as Jesus spoke, it is true, his son has been healed. Verse 53, so the father knew, based upon the information just given to him by his servants... It was the same hour in which Jesus said to him, Your son lives. And he himself believed in his whole household. So we find here, it was at the same hour in which Jesus said to him, Your son lives. At that very moment that Jesus spoke the word, Go your way, your son lives. The nobleman's son was made well. And he himself believed. Now, he already believed. So what does this mean? He already believed in Jesus. Obviously, he rushed down to Cana to beseech him to heal his son. But it would seem that this act of mercy on Jesus' part sealed the man's faith in concrete. And again, when I talked about us being mindful of all the miraculous things that God has done for us throughout our lives... I try to do that on a regular basis because I can look back over my life and I can see from my earliest memories how God was watching over me, protecting me. How about you? Even before I was aware of him, he was aware of me. But it's so important. And so these things that happen to us, even though we have faith, even though we believe, they, they, they serve to just solidify that faith you know and, and part of it comes through trials and tribulations because um, when they forge something out of steel or iron or whatever how do they harden it in the fire right remember Shadrach Meshach and Abednego in the fire the fiery furnace the fiery trials of this life harden strengthen our faith make it like steel like iron. But the miracles certainly helped too. All the many things. I remember <clears throat> we'd been leasing this building for three years with an option to buy it, but it didn't look like there was any way that could ever happen. Our lease expired. We were now on a month to month. We're just kind of wondering what's going to happen. And we get this call from the bank and they're just desperate for us to buy the building. <laughs> because the guys that owned it that we were leasing from, they were investors from New York City. New York City? <laughs> <laughs> they weren't making the payments on the mortgage. They were collecting our rent, but they weren't making their payments. They also weren't paying the property taxes. The, this property was about to go into foreclosure... And so the bank is basically begging us to buy it. They didn't care if we could qualify for it or not. 
and we probably couldn't, shouldn't have qualified for it. At the end of the day, the investors had to pay off $320,000 in back taxes. The bank put up like $50,000 for the closing. I think we put up like $1,500. <laughs> and I stood out on the sidewalk there at the title company after we'd signed all the papers and everything. Pretty sure Dave was there, several of the guys, and I literally wept. I was crying. I couldn't believe what God had done for us. And I hope and pray you guys have those moments in your lives where what God has done is so amazing that you can't help but weep. Those things strengthen our faith. That's why we're encouraged to remember. Count your many blessings. Name them one by one, that old hymn. And there are scriptures that encourage us to remember those things that God has done because then when times get difficult we have something to hang our hats on spiritually speaking when the enemy tries to come and cause you to doubt to question to uh, try to bring you drag you into unbelief now wait a minute because I remember what God has done for me over and over and over again he is faithful he has proven himself and that happens here with this man he already believed or he wouldn't have gone to Cana or Cana but this really sealed the deal for him when he walked, was walking home. The servants come out to meet him. Your son is alive. He's well. And not only did he believe, his whole household, his wife, his children, his servants, all became believers in Jesus as a result of Jesus' word. Here it is. The, Jesus just spoke the word. Go your way. Your son lives. He spoke the truth. Jesus always speaks the truth. That's, a, that's why we cannot, must not rely upon emotions, feelings, the opinions of men. The truth of God's word will guide us and lead us as we, move, as we press on towards that high mark of our calling in Christ Jesus. And so we, we come to the end here. And it says, this again is the second sign Jesus did when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. The first sign was that of turning water into wine at the wedding feast in Cana. John 2.11, this beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Does that sound familiar? Just like this man with his son. The disciples believed in him. In order to follow him and become his twelve apostles, it was of first importance that they possessed faith in him. And obviously, just like the, the nobleman from Capernaum, his disciples followed him to Cana. They had followed him as he had recruited them there by the Jordan River in Judea, back up into Galilee. They believed on him even more powerfully and dynamically after they'd witnessed the water being turned into wine. The father and the rest of the household believed as a result of the healing of the boy. And in both cases, the verb in the original language is an inceptive aorist. It means they put their faith in him. His disciples believed in him or they put their faith in him. And that's what it takes to become a follower of Jesus Christ. You must put your faith in him. 
So the first sign persuaded his disciples. The second sign persuaded a Jewish nobleman and his household. And then the, the Samaritans believed without a sign because of his words. John 20, 29, Jesus said to Thomas, remember Thomas missed the first appearing of Jesus after the resurrection when he appears in the, uh, that room to his disciples, so they're all there, Judas is dead. Thomas isn't there, we don't know where he is, hiding out somewhere perhaps. And so the other disciples tell Thomas, we've seen the Lord, he's alive. They didn't believe Mary Magdalene when she told them. So Jesus appears to them in person, live in person Sunday night. Thomas isn't there. So a week later, they're gathered again. Thomas is there. This time, Jesus shows up again. Thomas says, I'm not going to believe unless I see the, you know, the wounds in his hand, the wound in his side. Jesus accommodates Thomas, lets him touch the wounds, touch the side. And then Thomas, of course, says, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you've seen me, you've believed. That's great. But blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. 1 Peter 1.8, though you've not seen him, you love him. How many of you can agree with that? Amen. Though you've not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him. And are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. You know, you might say that we who have come to faith in Christ without having seen him physically, which is virtually all of us in this room, are the most blessed believers of all. The one sign given to all that we must believe in, because we've been talking about signs today, there's the one sign, we talked about it earlier, Matthew 12, 40, For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. This is the one sign that we must believe in. As Jonah emerged alive and well after three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, Jesus emerged alive and well after three days in the grave. Yeah. Romans 8, 10 and 9. What does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith. That's the real word of faith. Not the name it and claim it doctrine. The word of faith which we preach that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus with your mouth. It's important to somehow, somewhere, give a verbal, out loud testimony of your faith in Christ. We used to talk in the old days about the Clairol Christian. Only your hairdresser knows for sure. You have to be willing to make, and that's one of the important things about baptism, that's an opportunity for you to make that proclamation in front of us. Jesus said, if you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father in heaven. But I believed in my heart. Well, it says right here. The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. The word of faith which we preach. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And that's what Jesus was talking about, the sign of Jonah. It wasn't just that he was in the whale for three days and three nights. No, he emerged alive and well. Jesus was in the grave three days and three nights. He, he emerged alive and well. If you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you might be saved. 
Does it say that? It says you will be saved. Let's stand. Before we have our final song this morning, we want to take some time for prayer. I invite you to raise your hand if you have a prayer request this morning. Lots of those around the room. Father, you see each person here this morning that has their hand raised. And Lord, even the ones that don't, there's probably some other thoughts in hearts and minds this morning, even if they didn't raise their hand. We th we're thankful that you know all things. You know our hearts. You know our minds, whether they raise their hand or not. But especially those who raise their hand, Father, indicating publicly that they desire prayer. Lord, some, it might be for health reasons. Lord, we do live in bodies that are cursed by sin. Lord, sickness is no indicator that we are in sin, that we've done anything wrong. All we have to do is be born into this world. There are germs, there are viruses, there's bacteria, there's diseases. Lord, your word says the rain falls on the just and the unjust, so that means the rain is a blessing. But Lord, there are bad things that happen to good people because we live in a world cursed by sin. So we lift up these health issues, whether it's a, a torn ligament, a strained muscle, a broken bone, Lord, it could be cancer. We talked about cancer this morning. We know that there are some folks in our church or connected to our church right now that are struggling with this particular affliction. God, we ask that you'd pour out your healing power upon them and deliver them from this dreaded illness of cancer that seems to be multiplying and magnifying upon our planet today. Lord, we know we're in the last days. We know that things are going to get worse before they get better. But we prevail, prevail upon your grace and mercy, Lord, for healing. Not because we deserve it. Not because we're worthy. Just like the nobleman didn't try to appeal to Jesus upon the basis of his own importance or his own worthiness, but simply upon the mercy of God. And that's what we call upon now, Father. Your mercy. Getting what we don't deserve. Your grace. Thank you, Lord. Your unmerited favor. We know we don't deserve it. But we thank you for your love, your grace, your mercy, your forgiveness, your long-suffering, your patience towards us. God, I want to lift up. There are several people in the church that I'm aware of who have been apparently hit with COVID again. Lord, we know there's a lot of confusion uh, we don't know how reliable the tests even are, but we know there are people who are sick. So regardless of what the true nature of their illness is, we pray for healing and deliverance in Jesus' name, Father, for the different ones within our body that are sick right now. Lord, we thank you that no affliction is too big or too small for you to be concerned about. So we lift them all up to you now. We lift up mental and emotional issues as well. Anxiety, depression, fear, worry, doubt, unbelief, anger, bitterness, jealousy, resentment. Please forgive us, Lord. We know that those are debilitating mental and emotional issues that we struggle with. But, Lord, we need to repent for those. We ask your forgiveness for harboring those in our hearts and minds. We ask you to forgive us, set us free, deliver us. Lord, you said you came to heal the brokenhearted, to set the captives free. And, Lord, that those who are captive to 
uh, bad emotions, feelings, thoughts. Your word tells us we're to take every thought captive to you. Help us to do that by the power of your Holy Spirit and the truth of your word. We pray for deliverance for those that are mentally and emotionally struggling right now, that you'd set them free in Jesus' name. We pray for relationships that have been damaged or broken. We pray for healing of marriages, friendships, work relationships, neighborhood relationships, and whatever arena of life we have relationships that have been damaged or broken. We pray for healing in the mighty name of Jesus. We know that the enemy comes to steal, to kill, to destroy, to divide and conquer. We pray that you would bring healing back into our marriages and our friendships on every level. And finally, we pray for economic issues, Lord, which you would help us during these difficult times. Lord, we want to be able to give a testimony to those around us that even though things are looking bleak and grim and dark with regards to the economy, the rising prices, so many people struggling, Lord, the credit card debt is at an all-time high. Help us to keep our eyes on you, that you would give us wisdom on how we manage our resources. And Lord, just like the woman whose cruise of oil never ran out and whose flour never ran out, we pray, God, that you would continually provide for us so that we can glorify your name and honor you. We thank you. We praise you. Now we ask you to receive our offering of praise in Jesus' name. Amen.